Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Monday, November 23rd. Well, Peel in Toronto entered into lockdown today and experts are concerned about how a second lockdown could affect people as we approach the holidays, especially when it comes to your mental health. So coming up, we'll talk to Dr. Joanna Henderson from CAMH about mental health strategies you can employ and how to recognize if someone you love is struggling. But first... I want to welcome to the program Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Welcome to the show, doctor. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. I was talking to someone from the Retail Council of Canada, and you know, I'm not. I know I don't want to get too out of your area of expertise, but he was talking about how the the lockdown in Peel and in Toronto was basically using a blunt instrument because there wasn't a lot of transmission through the retail sector of COVID nineteen. What are your thoughts on on uh, the scientific logic behind it? Should we be allowing people to maybe uh, just limiting numbers when it comes to shopping, especially now with with the Christmas season upon us and the busiest time of year and most lucrative for these um, stores? Yeah, I think for starters, that's I, I think that's a completely correct statement. That is a blunt instrument. It is a completely blunt instrument. And the whole goal of this blunt instrument is to reduce contacts in areas where you might be able to reduce contacts to help at least reduce the rate of growth of cases because the healthcare system is getting stretched to and beyond capacity. And this is the final tool you have in your toolbox. Like, you don't start with this. This is when things are completely out of control and your healthcare system is going to, is at risk of collapse. You can't have that happen. You know what happens when that happens. We've seen it. It was Wuhan. It was New York. It was Northern Italy. Like, you, you, can't, you can't have that. So yeah. while I appreciate that this policy stinks and it has very real and very bad consequences from an economic standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, from even a health standpoint. Like, this is what you do to protect your healthcare system from being overrun. Uh, the question here is, can they do the right thing during this time to boost their test, trace, and isolate strategy, to really look at what the drivers of infection are in the communities and make meaningful policy to address that? such that we don't need to have this repeated cycle of lockdowns. What about the messaging? Like, how much is that responsible in the confusing uh, <laughs> messaging for, for what's going on? And I just want to use something as an example that I thought was interesting. So you were talking about how this blend instrument is the last, you know, it's the last resort. So it, you have to reduce the growth of COVID by, you know, stopping people from congregating. Yet they give like a, a two-day window, a word of warning so that people can cram into malls over the weekend and and head to uh, places en masse before they shut down. Uh, Shouldn't they just be saying, guess what? There's no lead time. We're done. As of tonight, that's it. We're going into 28-day lockdown. Is that two-day leeway actually necessary? Isn't that possibly more harming, harmful and more confusing? Uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, I've been talking about this all weekend. Listen, please steer me in the right direction if I'm off on this, but here, here's, here are my initial thoughts. You've got to give people time to prepare. You can't pull the rug out from underneath people. You have to ask, you act swiftly and, unfortunately, decisively. But, you know, I think it's only reasonable to give people some time to prepare. The scenes that we saw, people crowding into malls and stores, you know, I, I very... 
we're, we're just looking at snippets of news reels and, and, and that. And yeah, sure, it's not all perfect, but like everyone's wearing a mask. People are relatively distant from one another. Like how many cases of transmission are going to be from a mall here? It's not. You're asking zero. me, you're the infectious disease specialist. It's more a rhetorical question, <laughs> but like, it's certainly not going to be zero. But, like, I don't think that this last 48 hours is going to result in explosive outbreaks like we saw with, you know, for example, Thanksgiving spikes, in which, unfortunately, we might see with uh, Christmas, New Year, Diwali, Hanukkah spikes. Mm. Like, it's, you know, it's something, but I don't know if it's going to be something huge. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, you were mentioning the holidays there. Black Friday's coming up this weekend. You also mentioned New York City. We have to do this now. Lockdown now. We don't want to turn into a New York City. I just heard some really macabre reports that in Brooklyn, they basically have freezer trucks set up from the, the first COVID wave in the spring where they have like hundreds of bodies that remain unclaimed. Because either people can't afford to bury them or they can't get in touch with their next of kin. And they mm-hmm. were going to put them into a mass burial site. But Bill de Blasio said, no, absolutely not. So there's these loved ones on freezer yeah. trucks. It's such a stark image. It's just it's almost hard to conceive. Oh, yeah. And like like you're hearing places in uh, like North and South Dakota, parts of Utah, certainly in Texas, many parts of the states are having a very tough time with this. There are some health, some healthcare systems are stretched to and beyond capacity. Uh, people aren't getting the health care that they need or deserve well beyond COVID-19. But this is this is this is really ugly. I mean, obviously, vaccines are on the horizon and, and they're going to work. Uh, but that's still months away for the vast majority of people. Uh, what's interesting, though, I mean, not to pivot, but uh, you know, it's expected that vaccine programs are going to start as early as mid-December in many parts of the United States. So this is certainly going to help uh, Canada probably first quarter of 2021. But like that's still a while away. Like we're still in tough in a tough position right now. And, and we can't just just think that the vaccines are going to save us because there's still a lot of work that needs to be done between now and then. I'm surprised at how many people don't understand that. You know, I was talking to some girlfriends over the weekend that are you know, quite intelligent people, but they are uh, not as close to the story as we are on a daily basis. I mean, this is all that you and I have been focusing on mm-hmm. for, you know, what, over seven, eight months. Yeah, well, you've been focusing <laughs> on it for ages. It's your career. But um, AstraZeneca, great news from them. Late straight trials today, late stage trials, they say that the COVID vaccine is highly effective in preventing disease. Now, it's interesting. Interesting. One of the interesting points of this uh, story is that they found that the vaccine is more effective when you give a half dose um, followed by a full dose the next month rather than a full dose followed by the full dose the next month. Why would that be? I was hoping it would never come to this on air because, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I could completely speculate as to the immune response with the first dose and boosting of the immune response with the second dose, but it, I, I'm really not sure. And uh, I think it's interesting. It's also very helpful because, quite frankly, you need less vaccine to provide a better immune response. So if we actually magnify that on a global level, you get way more bang for your buck. The other great thing about this vaccine is it's cheap compared to the other ones. It's only a couple bucks. The other ones are uh, about 15 to 20. 
Uh, and this AstraZeneca vaccine uh, basically can be stored in a refrigerator for months and months and months, whereas the other ones need minus 20 and minus 80 freezers to to, to store. So uh, when you think about the global even Canada-wide, but more importantly, a global rollout program, this AstraZeneca vaccine is is certainly much more likely to be successful because the logistics of getting this out are far easier. Um, I had one other point on the AstraZeneca, but, uh, oh, yeah. Well, let me distract you and you'll remember because that always happens with me. Um, One of the things you mentioned is with AstraZeneca is you're not really sure why it's only 60% effective with the two full doses and a half dose and a full dose gives you 90% efficacy. Could that be um, because it's it's the old uh, vaccine technology that we're working with? Because isn't Pfizer and Moderna the mRNA and that's relatively new technology? What, what is it about this vaccine that makes it cheaper and possibly work differently? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the uh, it, it takes a more conventional approach to vaccination. So it uses um, uh, a virus it's called an adenovirus that uh, and it basically weakens that adenovirus and changes it in a way that it holds a component of COVID-19 so that when you're given this weakened adenovirus you're, uh, you're, and, and then exposed to a COVID-19 component, your body recognizes COVID-19 and makes an immune response to COVID-19. Pretty smart, pretty smart. But that's a different way that uh, the, the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna work. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, at the end of the day, when we were talking about this months ago, we were saying how good this was that there's several different companies taking vastly different approaches because some are going to be successful and some aren't going to be successful. Here's a couple of the probably successful ones. Of the 200 vaccines that are still in the pipeline, most of those will never make it to market. But I'm cautiously optimistic that the three that we're talking about will and will probably be a part of programs rolling out you know, imminently. We're hearing that Doug Ford hand-selected retired General Rick Hillier uh, from the Canadian military to chair the province's new task force on vaccines. So he's going to treat this as a military operation. Is that important? Should we have people that are um, used to deploying, you know, large, um, you know, large military operations and and people? uh, Should we have them in charge? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. This isn't the time for, you know, overly academic decision making where we all sit in these giant committees and ponder existential ideas like this is the time for action we've got to figure out once these vaccines are approved let's find the most efficient and effective ways to get these rolled out across the country in a prioritized prioritized manner and that mode of thinking is going to be extremely helpful because it's just pragmatic like it's just like let's how do you get the job done safely and well they know how to rally the troops yeah yeah get her done i think it's great let me ask you before i let you go about canada health canada's uh, granted interim authorization to eli Lilly's covid19 antibody drug what exactly is this um and what's it used for (laughs) oh my god I, (laughs) i i don't really i'm not sure how useful this one's going to be it might be it might be this is an antibody cocktail um and it 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 could work like it's just it's not entirely clear how effective the uh this is actually going to be um so is it antibodies that were that were built based on the the 
you know, the COVID positive people that were donating plasma? Or there's am I just taking a leap here? It depends on the product. So actually, there's been a few products that have been approved. The other one is this Regeneron one, uh, that where uh, it is an antibody cocktail. And for example, some of these antibody cocktails in the clinical trials have basically shown with, you know, weak evidence, but some evidence, but still weak evidence that perhaps they can reduce the risk of people who get infected and an outpatient from being sick, uh, from deteriorating to be hospitalized. Okay, that sounds good. But like, take a step back and think about that. How do you identify who's at risk of being hospitalized who are in outpatients? Well, we know that could be a lot of people with risk factors, but this is an intravenous drug like this is an intravenous product so the logistics of finding people with this infection early enough in the course of the infection to provide them with an intravenous dose of these antibodies that may keyword may decrease the likelihood that they are hospitalized is very very challenging I, i'm i mean i'm all for progress and, and like i'm all for science and, and but i think when we take a step back i question how this is going to be actually scaled up and used in uh, in in clinical settings. I think it would be very challenging, and we should be looking for certainly be looking for other approaches to treat outpatients and inpatients. Uh-huh. This seems to me that this is this kind of treatment has a lot of ethical questions attached to it because I'm guessing like the favoritism and how important is this patient uh, to. Yeah you know, in the grand scheme of things would come up. I'm all I'm thinking about is, is I hate to say it, Trump, but you know. Yeah. But there's the the expense. And then there's just like the logistic practical on the ground issues that you're going to have. Like if you make a diagnosis at an outpatient facility, like you have to get an IV in, you have to have an infusion. Like it's, it's not. It's not easy. It's intense. It's not. There's lot. There's logistics involved, and it's. Right. It takes time and resources and planning and and cost. And there's going to be a lot of all of those. Well, I have to say, Doctor Bogosh, I apologize for getting you. You know, uh, throwing you off on a couple of questions, but it's always oh, a pleasure it. having you on the show. <laughs> it's great to chat. Take care. Have a great day. That's Dr. Isaac Bogosh, as you know. I want to talk about how something we talked about over the weekend, and that's uh, I discussed this with several family members, just asking people how they're doing and the importance of that. Medical professionals are concerned about the impact of a second lockdown and what it could have on those who live in restricted areas so close to the holidays. And if you're listening to me right now, if you're not in Toronto or Peel, odds are you know somebody who is in a lockdown area like Toronto or Peel, and you're concerned about them. They've been told to stay put and not socialize with anybody outside their household. Here to talk about um, the concerns that I think we have to keep at the fore, which is mental health. Dr. Joanna Henderson from CAMH, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Hi, Kelly. So let's talk about um, strategies for making sure that, that our loved ones are okay during lockdown. What would you recommend as far as checking in on people when, you know, most of us physically can't do that? Definitely. It's critically important to understand, you know, for everyone in your network, finding out what's the best way to keep in touch with them, to check in on them, find out what works for them, not just sort of moving to a virtual platform that may be uncomfortable, but a a good old phone call, a card in the mail, um, you know, a casserole on the front step or or in the lobby uh, might be the best way to do it. But really reaching out, even even if it feels hard and you're tired, you know, um, you do have to pay attention to self-care. And at the same time, if if you're, you know, keen to support others, um, understanding what works for them is important. 
How do you recognize if someone you know is struggling with mental health issues, you know, when you aren't in close contact and maybe they haven't exhibited any kind of mental health issues before? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the early signs is definitely when people withdraw from things that they uh, usually do. So if you have uh, people in your social network who are usually responsive when you text them or call them and you find they're not responding or not calling back, um, if when you are able to connect with them, sometimes you can observably see or hear that they seem or appear low. Um, You might see that they're very stressed. Um, You know, we have, uh, you know, you might encounter people who talk a lot about, you know, all kinds of different terrible outcomes that could uh, arise from COVID and and are really sort of in that space. Um, Those could, you know, really flag opportunities to maybe start to have a bit of a conversation um, with those, uh, those friends and colleagues. I always worry about what to say to be completely honest. So how do you navigate a conversation that you're really, you know, the skill set for? Yeah, well, you know what? I would say yes and no about the skill set. I think everyone has relevant skills in terms of having open and transparent conversations with people. And, of course, there are times when those conversations might get into a space where uh, more professional help is needed. But starting those conversations can be um, uh, talking about your own, how you you yourself are managing. So you're kind of creating a space, creating some trust. Um, And then a lot of a lot of it is about listening. So asking, you know, how you how are you doing? I'm finding it hard. I'm finding it hard in these ways. How are you doing? How are you managing? Um, what's working for you? What's not working for you? Um, these conversations aren't categorically different than other kinds of conversations. Um, uh, but, you know, certainly if people start to express a lot of distress, it, it can, if you're going into that kind of conversation, it can be a good idea sort of upfront to know a little bit about how you might, um, you know, what you might encourage them to do to talk to their family doctor or to reach out to, for other kinds of supports. I want to turn to uh, CAMH study, which I think if, if memory serves correctly, you do this. This is an annual study you do with with uh, youth, isn't it? Where you talk to fourteen thousand students province wide. Yes, biannual. So every other year for forty years plus now. <laughs> right, and you. The last time you did this study, th- this was from pre pandemic that you were getting results, and some of the results are just, you know, they're heartbreaking and they're hard for me to wrap my head around. And I'm sure as soon as I start talking about some of the stats here, people are going to stop in their tracks. One in seven Ontario students in grades seven to 12 say they've harmed themselves on purpose in the past year. One in six have had serious thoughts of suicide, serious thoughts of suicide, one in six. And one in three say that there was a time in the past year when they wanted to talk to somebody about a mental health problem, but they didn't know where to turn. You think that the the numbers now since COVID uh, hit and since this pandemic started could be higher than that? Yeah. So, in fact, we're also doing not not um, research of that scope, but we are following um, a couple of groups of young people over time uh, through the pandemic. And we um, definitely have seen uh, that they are reporting their mental health is deter- has deteriorated. And that's both young people who had previous mental health challenges and young people who had never reported experiencing mental health difficulties before. Um, and so we know that we've kind of got you know, uh, a double problem arising. um, And we're really going to need to step up in terms of making sure we have relevant and accessible and high quality services available for young people. 
So what are the factors that are contributing to this crisis? Is it due to information overload? They just know too much and they can't shut off? Is it due to the fact that they are uh, not seeing their friends and, and rightfully so because it's the pandemic? But that is one of the important, um, isn't it an integral biological step that you start to socialize <laughs> with people outside your family? Absolutely. Like one of the things about the pandemic and the public health restrictions is it's kind of like in a really bad way, uniquely targets all of these important developmental milestones for young people in this age range. So becoming more connected with peers, um, establishing yourself more like with more autonomy, um, uh, you know, progressing through education, becoming employed, perhaps moving out of the house. So we have some young people who are for the first time ever living alone, far away from home, um, and are completely disconnected. And then we have other young people in the same age range who might be living at home in really small spaces with many other people and really high levels of stress. So this is really a stage where we we have lots of different young people experiencing different things, and we really need to think through that sort of individual lens. We can think in general and be aware that, oh, you know, people are likely to be experiencing some increased difficulty. But when it comes right down to the person in front of you, it's thinking about that individual person, their context, what they're experiencing and how we can support them. I was shocked to hear that one in three say that, you know, there's a time in the past year that they wanted to talk to someone and they didn't know where to turn when it came to a mental health problem. Um, That can't be a stat that you want to hear if you're a parent. I know that a lot of parents feel that they can talk to their kids and their kids would come to them if something important is going on. But A lot of times that's just not the case. You could be the most supportive parent in the world. So if you're a parent listening to this, A, how do you identify what's going on with your kid and how do you, what information do you give them so that they have a place to turn to? So I think you raise really important points. It can't only be about parents. Um, And so parents sometimes, yeah, get stuck in that trap of feeling like they want to, you know, they should be the person to talk. And I think letting young people know that it's okay that they, uh, if they feel like they need to talk to someone else, that they should reach out and do that, even if it's not the parent. And that can be other trusted adults in the family social network. It can be people in the school system, people in the community sector, and those services are all available. They continue to be available. They look a little bit different, um, but it's really important. I think the other thing that parents can do, um, instead of asking questions, it's a little bit more about maybe modeling your own internal processes. One of the things around stress and mental health is that it's a, it's quite invisible. Adults don't necessarily model explicitly the positive things they might be doing to manage their own mental health. So I think families that can start to have conversations around, I'm feeling really stressed. This is what I'm doing to take care of myself. This is how helpful it is for me to talk to my best friend or my, you know, whoever. Um, And creating an atmosphere that's more open around mental health can create the space that young people need to be able to say what's going on for them. I know that health and wellness coaches are urging people through this lockdown uh, in this pandemic to make sure they get their proper exercise, make sure they are aware of how they're eating and eat as healthy as they can, get a solid sleep if possible. How important is it for uh, parents to get the kids involved, not only with the healthy eating, but also like go on family hikes, maybe invest in some snowshoes, uh, you know, make sure you're active this winter. 
Absolutely. Uh, both active inside the home, so taking some time to think about not just sitting together and sort of asking difficult questions, but, you know, I don't know, playing a game of whatever, cards, scrabble, whatever. Also, the exercise, the sleep. Um, so making sure there's kind of those clear, clear demarcations of getting up in the morning, getting dressed, starting one's day as separate from lying in bed. Um, and it's really easy, you know, to stay sort of um, not doing those things um, and, and paying attention to eating, paying attention to substance use too. We've seen increases in alcohol use um, and it's important. And, and that's amongst parents of children um, as well. Um, and so, you know, again, parental mon- uh, modeling, um, inclusion of their kids. Don't presume your, your kids don't want to participate. Uh, at this point in time, they may be really keen to participate and get outdoors. We're just a month away from Christmas. We've got two areas in a 28-day uh, lockdown. Nothing's predictable. It's hard to get excited about things. How important is it to uphold uh, some sort of a holiday tradition? Should be, you be decorating? Should you be, even though your, your holiday, whether it's, uh, you know, um, Christmas or otherwise uh, that you're celebrating, should you be scaling that down but making sure that you keep some traditions up? I think that's going to be a little bit dependent on your own family and your own context. I think I would be mindful of um, also the people you're reaching out to. So don't expect that everyone's going to be in the same place you are in terms of your approach. Um, so if you're going to be, you know, like I'm not doing anything, this is the wrong, the wrong year to do it. Other, you know, that might be hurtful to other people. If but on the other hand, if you're really kind of like, you know, pushing everyone to to engage, that might not be the the right approach for those people either. What about kids? Because that's what I want to focus on. Yeah. I mean, I think for kids, the, they need parental reassurance that things are going to be okay. Holidays often are an opportunity to um, convey that hopefulness for the future, um, uh, experience that sense of belonging. Um, At the same time, I think, you know, de-emphasizing maybe what would have been the sort of present buying um, piece to it, uh, which could increase our our public health risks Mm -hmm. uh, or our health risks uh, will also be really important. Dr. Henderson, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, It's it's concerning what we're seeing with our youth, but I think it's important that we're all aware of it so we can make sure that they have the supports that they need. Thank you very much for your interest. Have have yourself a great afternoon. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Thanks to Jordan for putting the podcast together today. Don't forget, we broadcast Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. If you have some time, join us live.